Well, good afternoon, all of you. Good to be home. I uh, left Montana with beautiful snow on the trees. Truly ugly snow on the roads. <laughs> there's, a, there's a difference there. Uh, a lot of 45 and 50 mile an hour stuff for about 250 miles or a little over. So it's kind of slow going, but I'd I'd rather take a little more time than be in a ditch somewhere. So it, uh, it worked out fine. But it is good to be back here, <clears throat> sun shining and everything. Well, I'm sure we're watching what's going on in the world. I won't spend a lot of time on it uh, this afternoon, but I have been listening to this one and that one about some of the things happening, and it appears that we're having an escalation there pretty rapidly. Uh, I heard one report today that the uh, aircraft carrier Eisenhower is now in the Persian Gulf, not in the Mediterranean, as I heard it was going into the Mediterranean, but uh, it must have gone on down through Suez. I think it can get through there. Uh, and up into the Persian Gulf, uh, and only positioned uh, offshore of Iran. And that's got to be a major threat for Iran. What are they doing over there when the action at this moment is in Israel and Gaza? Uh, so things are preparing, and some of our fighters did attack Iranian sites in Syria uh, today. So not just Hezbollah, not just Gaza, but American planes attacked in Syria, and we are punching at Iran pretty hard. Uh, threats are going everywhere in the world, and uh, that thing is apparently going to escalate. Israel does seem to be going now into Gaza, uh, not full force yet, but they're sending tanks in at night and continuing the air bombardment and doing some ground fighting, but they haven't actually fully invaded as yet as of this morning that I saw. Uh, but many enemies of Israel are saying, if you do go in there and Iran is one of them, we will not allow it. So I think we're truly there. When that second eclipse went over, uh, I think it opened this whole thing up. Now, it, the invasion from Gaza started on the last great day, uh, but it didn't really ramp up until a few days later, and we weren't really involved in sending ships and everything there Probably, I didn't really check, but probably until about the time of the eclipse. took about a week to get our ducks together. But we had, uh, we had one aircraft carrier there very quickly, as soon as he could get there. So we were ready to go. And this whole thing has been planned from the beginning, very well planned, and... I think they're going to continue with their plan. They didn't start this just to back off this time. Uh, it appears that it is going to go on into what we think, uh, and the prophecies seem to indicate, 
I do think Daniel 8 and our observations there about the goat from the west flying without touching the ground and destroying Persia may be right on track. Uh, and then breaking their horn, and as soon as we break the horn of Persia or Iran, uh, then our horn is next. And you see that shaping up with our government just openly, blatantly committing treason now against the people of the United States. It's not even hidden at all. Uh, they've abandoned the Constitution entirely. They do what they want to. And they've been letting guerrillas in across the border now by the millions, ready to fight. And we may be seeing the beginning of some guerrilla warfare. Uh, that thing in Maine, you know, you... You expect that kind of thing to happen in Dallas or Chicago or L.A. or somewhere, but a little town in Maine, uh, here 22 people originally and then 18, I don't know how many exactly, were killed. And now it appears there was more than one shooter, and the one that they blamed it on conveniently got two shots to the head, uh, which is a little strange. Usually when you blow your brains out, you don't pull the trigger again. It's pretty well over. Uh, so we've had lots of, over the years, lots of suicides to the back of the head uh, from Clintons and on. So uh, it looks like they're getting ready to turn some things loose here. So hang on to your hat. <laughs> hang on to your prayers and be getting close to God. That's all I can say. That's the main thing, because he is our only hope, and he's the only hope we want. <clears throat> if you're going to have a hope, that's the place to have it. Today, let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy. I didn't get near as far through it as I anticipated I might in during the feast, but we might as well continue here, because I think as we've already seen up to chapter 12, uh, there are statements about the latter days. There are statements about turning to God uh, over and over in those first chapters indicating that this is an end-time prophecy book. We don't think of Deuteronomy that way too much. We think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, and maybe John in the book of Revelation. But uh, Moses is called a prophet. So... Uh, his books are prophetic, and there's an awful lot in this book about the United States and the rest of Israel uh, as we go on through, and gives us very careful instruction. God is not a God of generalities. He's very specific about many, many things, and he wants us to be specific in the things that we understand and know, and we get those specifics from his word. Uh, that's just the way his mind is. You look at a, a bird, and there are very specific things about that bird that have to all work together. I heard a song the other day, it's been long since gone called Tennessee Birdwalk, and I, I remembered the title, but I didn't remember the song at all, but it was, it was kind of a cute thing about how, what if the birds 
lost their wings and they had to walk, and what if they lost their feathers and had to wear their underwear south, and all of this, and how that would change the world. And then at the end of the song is, what if they got their feathers back and their wings back and they became birds again, real birds. Uh, it was just cute to me from the standpoint that God made them in a certain way. Each one's different. Uh, each species of bird is different. They have characteristics you can look for, and they're always there. And they do specific things, and they don't have to go to school and learn how to build a nest, and how to eat, and all those things, or how to fly. They jump out of the nest, and they learn on the way down, and if they don't, the cat gets them. Uh, or they try two or three or four times, and then they, they get, if the cat isn't around, they get to where they can fly. It doesn't take long. God is very specific about the way he designed everything. And it even says in the scripture that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's incredible how he put the human body together and then made two different kinds of humans, male and female, and so different and yet so alike at the same time. It's amazing what he's done. And then all of his instruction in this book is about human beings as specifically as they were designed and how they are to operate, what they are to do, because we're not like birds or other or animals that have an instinct that he put in us, and it's very specific because they instinctually do certain things, fly south at a certain time of the year. Uh, they just go when the time is right, and they come back when the time is right. But humans aren't that way. We're born with no instinct, really. Uh, we don't know what to do, so we just do the easiest thing there is, and that's start bellering. And then we have to be taught everything. Uh, I mean, even from not messing our pants as we get a couple years old, and so on and so forth. We have to be taught everything. So God wrote this book to be very specific about the things we are to do and how we are to live. This is an instruction book to human beings on how to live. You can go out to the bookstands or the bookstores or online and get thousands of books with people advising you on how to live and how to do this and how to do that. Lots of conflicting information because they all have different ideas. And no matter what the subject, they have different ideas. So God gave us a book that he wrote himself or caused to be written and he put the words through the prophet's heads or the authors and gave us exactly what we need. And it's so beautifully done and in such great detail that you can go from Genesis to Revelation and anywhere in between, and it all agrees. There's no disagreement there. Lots of different writers, but no disagreements. Can you find a library that has 66 books written by different authors that agree on much of anything? <laughs> Not much. 
I mean, you can look up something about health. And depending on who the writer is, you'll get all kinds of different information and contradicting information. Some saying just the opposite of what the others said. And so you, there's no authority anywhere on much of any subject that you can research. Then you have to sort it out yourself and say, what makes the most sense and what fits the Scripture? Because this is the book God wrote. So he gave us some very specific things to follow, and we're going to get into some of those here in the Statutes and Judgments in Deuteronomy 12, that religion as a whole ignores. Uh, the whole of churchianity, so-called Christianity, denies virtually everything in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, as well as the rest of Deuteronomy, for that matter, and the whole Bible. You know, it's so easy to find the true church. That is one of the easiest things there is to do. All you have to do is open this book and start reading, and it won't be long until you eliminate all the churches except the church of God, wherever it may be found. I mean, case in point, all you have to do is look in here, and it says the seventh day is the Sabbath, Genesis 1. Don't have to go any further than that, Genesis 1, seventh day is the Sabbath. We still count them that way. Saturday is the seventh day. Sunday's the first day of the week. Still that way on the calendars. Hadn't changed over the years. And yet God said that is the test commandment. First test. Which day is the Sabbath? So anybody that's keeping Sunday or Wednesday or Friday can't be it. Because the test commandment is the seventh day of worship. Once you prove the Sabbath, and that was the first one that Herbert Armstrong was faced with. His wife said, Saturday's the Sabbath. And he said, it is not, like anybody would. And she kept on him, and he finally says, well, I'm going to prove it. didn't take him long to prove from the Bible that Saturday was the seventh day, and it was the Sabbath. So he was on the right track, and then all kinds of other things followed suit as he found out what does the book say as opposed to what does... Quakers, Methodists, Baptists, Church of Christ, whoever, Catholics say, doesn't take long. If you're a Catholic, when you have the Pope say that Klaus Schwab is more important than Jesus Christ, in a direct quote, that kind of lets the Catholics out. Uh, well, they already went out on the Sunday thing. But it just gets worse and worse the further you go. So here are some of the statutes and commandments God gave that for the most part, right here in this chapter, you can find out that there are a lot of churches out there that don't follow what God says. It's, it's that simple, really. So you've got to find a place where they're following every word of God. That's what he says. Those that worship me have to worship in truth and in spirit and every word of God. Matthew 4, 4, Luke 4, 4 on that one. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land which the eternal God of your fathers gives you to possess it. 
all the days that you live upon the earth. Now, as Israelites, we were returned to this land after going into captivity, and God gave us, as I've said, 430 years from Roanoke until 2017. He gave us 430 years, essentially, of freedom to do as we would. And the 430, by Ezekiel on his side, reminded us of the 430 in Egypt, or Mitzrayim, where we were in captivity during that period of time. So because of that captivity, God gave us 430 years of freedom. He paid us back for our slavery with freedom. And we were then to follow his ways. So he brought us to this country, back to the promised land where we had begun, and gave us 430 years to show if we would serve him and to worship him, or if we would go after the gods of whoever and whatever that we had always tended to do in the Old Testament. And a few started out trying to obey God, kept the Sabbath, the holy days, among the pilgrims. But it didn't last long because the leaders weren't God-fearing men. Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, any of them. They were deists. They weren't even, didn't even call themselves Christians. Deists believed there was a God that made this, kind of obvious. But then he went on somewhere else and has been busy with other things and just left us on our own. Those are the ones who founded this country and the government of this country, left on their own, not Christians. And the people who are in religion today, 99 point whatever percent, are not Christians either. They call themselves that, just like the Pharisees call them the children, themselves the children of Abraham and children of God. And yet Christ said, you're snakes and children of Satan. You worship you know not what. And they were as religious as you can get. And they understood about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they weren't following what God says in here. They were liars and thieves, stealing even their own mother's houses. And on and on it went. Not paying attention to God. So even though they had the Old Testament, they were simply not following God's instruction, even though they were following some of these statutes and judgments, yet they still were not, well, they didn't have the word back then, Christians, until later in the early New Testament church. Then they did. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land which the eternal God of your fathers gives you to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. They were here because of disobedience. They were taken captive by the Babylonians. And eventually, God allowed them to come back here where we had been to start with. And these are the things you're to do in the land which God gave you. So we came back to America as many, many Israelites, 
primarily, I think, Ephraimites, but some of other tribes as well, and Gentiles among them. But we didn't do that first verse. Just didn't do it. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. We were to get rid of all that, and yet it didn't take us very long to have Christmas trees and Easter eggs and Halloween uh, demons. That's coming up here pretty quick. Christmas really against God? Read Jeremiah 10. Perfect description of Christmas. You take a tree out of the forest and decorate it and all that. Christmas. Give gifts to one another. And he condemns it soundly in Jeremiah 10. And yet we adopted it soon after we got here. Brought it over from Europe and kept it up. Christmas is... A holiday of Satan the devil. Interesting that Klaus Schwab and Santa Klaus are very similar. Uh, who knows? He may or may not be the man, and he could be the beast, and Francis could be the false prophet. I don't know that. If they keep living here for another year or two or three or four, it's going to become very obvious uh, who those people are. But if I had to say, today, based on the things they're saying and doing, I'd say those were likely candidates. But they could die tomorrow and another candidate come out of the woods real fast. Just like Putin is uh, apparently almost at death. Some say he is dead. Some say he's nearly dead. Uh, heart attacks and so on. So we don't know. But he looked like the king of the north, or Russia does. But he may not be the one leading it. Maybe a new leader right away. It'll be interesting to see what kind of guy he is. But the king of the north seems to be shaping up pretty well to be Russia, along with the allies that they get, as listed in Psalm 83 and other places. But we still have Christmas and Easter and Halloween and all these things Book of Easter, I mean the book, book of Ezekiel describes Easter pretty well. About as well as Jeremiah 10 describes Christmas. And anything having to do with all hallows, all saints, all Satan days like Halloween, it's about demons all the way through. So how can that be of God? So we didn't break down all these pagan things as we came into this country and just do what God said, we had to keep all these things. Birthday parties, celebrating birthdays. There are only three places where birthdays and birthday parties are mentioned in the Bible. And in all three cases, somebody died. All three cases, Herod and Job's kids, and the other one escapes me at the moment, uh, Christ hid his birthday, so one, no one would know when it was. It wasn't in December or December 25th. The 
the uh, cattle, the sheep, were still abiding in the field. They weren't back into home to be fed in the winter. They were still out in the field. So it wasn't winter time. It wasn't, it doesn't fit at all. And on and on it goes. Those, those are just a couple of things off the top of the head, but it goes on into so many, many things that didn't fit the book. So he doesn't want us to know when he was born. He let us know very clearly the day he died. So if you want to celebrate something, celebrate people's death rather than their birth. Because very clearly in the book of Ecclesiastes, that the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Well, you wouldn't die if you weren't born, that's true. But what's more important, being a squalling baby, wet and wrapped in swaddling clothes, who has not got a record in life, has nothing, or someone who's lived 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and they've established, hopefully, a pattern of righteous living, a pattern of serving God, and when they die, then God says, that's wonderful, because they know they'll be in his kingdom. So the day of your death, when you have lived a life and proven yourself faithful to God, is what's important to him. As a screaming baby, you haven't proved a thing. As a mature human being, you hopefully have proved something, that you will serve God. And he says the death of his saints is sweet to him. Now, when one of us dies, it's sad to us. And in one sense, maybe it is sad to God. But he has a much bigger mind, and his emotions scattered, or not scattered, but cover a lot more area than ours do. So, we as humans essentially can only see the physical. And he sees, understands, and knows what he can do with dead bones. He's going to make them shake, rattle, and roll. He knows what he can do. We hope we know what he can do. We have faith that he can resurrect us. Because we read it here, and we see his creation around us that shows that he can create beautiful, wonderful, living things. But we're limited. He's not. He says, the death of my saints is what impresses me, not necessarily their birth. Because he knows what he's going to do with them and give them life eternal forever in his kingdom. And wow, once you've put forth a good record, that's great. See, we, we keep birthdays and mark our time primarily because we know it's limited, it's short, and we don't get that right away. When we're little, we want to be big. I don't know what point it is that we wish we could quit having birthdays, certainly by 39, because that's when people plant their feet and say, I'm going to stay 39. But when you're little, you want to be big, and when you're big, you don't want to be old. And when you're old, you don't want to be dead. So we have 
a finite, limited view. And therefore, our birthdays in society have become so important to us. But that date's not important. What's important is the Sabbath day. What is important is the Feast of Tabernacles. What is important is am I obeying God day in, day out, week after week, month after month, and year after year, so that I can live eternally in His kingdom where there really is no birthdays. You live eternally. And why do you count it? God is the Ancient of Days. <laughs> He's been around a long, long time. He doesn't need to count it. Now, it's not wrong to recognize our age. I'm not saying that. Because in the Bible, there are many places where it talks about how old somebody was when such and such happened, or what age they were when they died. So they were keeping track of the years that went by. And I don't think it's wrong necessarily to say, oh, you've, you've now achieved age 10 or age 12 or 15. But is it really necessary to make that child the emphasis to celebrate them? Uh, where do we find that? We're to celebrate what Christ did, mainly in his death and resurrection, not in his birth. So we need to get the emphasis off that, and for decades and decades in the Church of God, we recognize that birthday parties, beyond just recognition that somebody's older, is not the way to go. What does the Bible say? Every time there was a birthday party mentioned in the Bible, somebody died. To me, that's, I don't think I want to do that. Might die. <laughs> but he's letting man do what man wants to do. Anyway, where was I here? Our America does not follow God. Not in their celebrations, not in their holidays, not in anything they do. <clears throat> so we're to get rid of all that. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. When people got here from Europe, they brought their own <coughs> helly days with them. But there were an awful lot of things here on this continent with the Indians that were also pagan and ungodly. Totem poles? We still got totem poles. We put them on top of our churches. Uh, they just decorated trees. They're just male sex symbols is all they are. All decorated up and worshipped. And they worshipped ravens, and they worshipped different animals. <coughs> the crow tribe, you know, and on and on it went. Now, there are some vestiges of God even among the religions of the American Indians. Uh, they have some traditions that go back as far as Israel before they left, and God's word before Israel was taken captive because many of them were children of Israel or 
uh, part Israelite, <coughs> but they were racially mixed. And there are some things in their cultures that still seem to indicate a presence of God. Uh, feathers representing the Ten Commandments and so on. There's some of those things that may go back to God, but they've basically been forgotten and they went into all kinds of pagan Satan worship, just like Israel did when they got out of here and went into captivity to learn to obey God. They went ahead instead and followed the Babylonian gods, wherever they went. And Americans did that when they came here. So cut down all their images. Cut all the steeples off the churches. Get rid of all the Christmas decorations. You know, there's so much that needs to change. I'm already seeing Christmas decorations. Oh my, barely get the pumpkins up and here come the Christmas stuff. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. But unto the place which the eternal your God shall choose, out of all your tribes to put his name there, even to his habitation shall you seek, and there you shall come. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand and your vows and your free will offerings and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks. So, he says, come to the right place, and then he gets into our financial lives, if you will. Uh, that's, you don't meddle with American financial stuff, do you? Well, God does. He tells us all these things we're supposed to do before him. With Americans, for the most part, money and wealth is the center of their lives. That's what most Americans but is their first God, is materiality. And so you think you should keep Sunday as the Sabbath. Well, what does it say about the Sabbath? Even if you got the wrong one, if you think it's the Sabbath, it says don't work on the Sabbath, right? If you think it's Sunday, you shouldn't be working on that day. How many people in America work on Sunday now? They think it's the Sabbath, but my job comes first. My boss makes me work on Sunday. If I don't, I'll lose my job, and therefore, I work on Sunday. No, God says Saturday's the Sabbath. Don't work on it. And we had people who came into the church and began keeping the Sabbath who actually lost their jobs. But it was a test, you see. The first test commandment. Will you keep the Sabbath? Or is your job and your worship of money greater than your worship of God? People had to make that choice. And when they made the choice, when they actually obeyed God and either quit or got their job lost, then God provided them with another job. Because he said, if you keep my Sabbath, I will bless you. So you can't lose. Obey God and you get blessed. Disobey God and you're going to continue in trouble of one kind or another. The place he chooses. I'll just give you a couple of scriptures there. Uh, 
First Kings eleven thirty-two. Uh, Solomon was building the temple, and God had told him that that's where he'd placed his name. Uh, Isaiah thirty-three twenty. I think I will turn and read that one right quickly. It's very well put. Isaiah thirty-three. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Your eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. So, uh, right there he's saying that Jerusalem is the city of our solemnities, our solemn feasts, Passover, Atonement all the other uh, holy days that God set apart are to be kept in the area of Jerusalem and of Zion. Now, Zion and Jerusalem are two sites that are separate uh, originally. Zion Park encompasses probably most of the original Zion. And north of it, uh, it says in the Psalms, we would find Jerusalem on the north side. So that area is where God set his name, and he said it would not be taken down. Well, now, this is written in Isaiah. It's not written in Exodus or Leviticus. Isaiah is a prophecy of the future. And once God establishes things in Jerusalem again, after it has been now desolate for many generations, and he reestablishes it, it's going to stay established. The city itself will be taken over by the beast and false prophet briefly, three and a half years. But they won't tear it down. That'll be their place of world government. And we will remove to Zion just a walk away, or a run, away from the city of Jerusalem, but it's still right there in the same area and be protected while they take over Jerusalem for a short while, the city itself, but it won't be destroyed again because God is going to rebuild it. And he says that there in a very end-time book, Daniel chapter 9, Jerusalem will be built in 70 weeks. And then the abomination of desolation spoken of in in Matthew 24 will come and you'll have to flee to the mountains of Judea and the beast and the false prophet will take over the temple and Jerusalem for a short while. Daniel 11 shows that they will also have the gold and the riches and the things that are buried that God is going to unearth in Matthew, I mean in Isaiah 44 and 45. They're going to take them over for a short while. They'll be in the hands of the people of God to be in the temple, and then the beast and false prophet will take it over. Satan knows where the original Jerusalem was. And he knows he made a counterfeit in the Middle East that doesn't fit the Bible picture at all. But that's where, right now, uh, the New World Order wants to set up their world government is Jerusalem. Now, that will appeal to a couple of billion Muslims who think that the mosque there in Jerusalem is the most sacred place. 
and the Christians, a couple of billion of them, who also think the same thing. So Satan is going to set it up in the city wherein he dwells, and he'll bring his leaders there, and there they will rule until Jerusalem is built back, and then they will come and take it. Those treasures and the gold and the temple uh, vessels and all that that are hidden in southern Utah are going to come out, and they're going to be used. And then the beast and false prophet will abuse them. But Satan will come and set his government up in the original Jerusalem. He knows where it was. And he'll know where God's people are, and he's going to chase them and try to kill them. They'll escape to Zion, and then he goes after the remnant of her seed, it says there in Revelation 12, the 90% who were not drawn to come to build Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the place that he said his name. But it was in the promised land, and the promised land is not over there. It's just not there. It doesn't fit at all, the Scriptures. We've been over all that, so I won't go back through it all today. But here we are in the Jerusalem area, and I don't think God has yet shown where it is on purpose, but He will use the treasures when they come out to show the whole world that He is God and the place where Jerusalem and Zion are and were. At least the Mormons, to some degree, figured that out. Because I do believe that Joseph Smith was influenced by some Jesuits who knew that this area was the place. And Brigham Young even said it. Standing, I think it was in Hurricane, and said, the greatest treasures on earth are hidden within 50 miles of here. And he's about right. So they came here looking for it and looked hard for it. And there were a couple of Mormons that knew where it was and left signs and signals all over the place. Columbus was looking for it. A lot of people have. Hitler came out, sent people here in this area to find those treasures because he needed them. And on and on that story goes. But Satan certainly knows where it is. God knows where it is. And now a few people know where it is, and a lot of people are going to find out where it is. That's what's coming. But how do you go to the place where God said His name if you can't find it? You don't know where it is. We still have some church members who will go over to the Middle East, and I had some relatives of mine that went over there for this feast, and barely got out. They had to go to Jordan and get a flight back here uh, because Tel Aviv was shut down. The airport was shut down. And they couldn't go out. They almost got trapped there. But they went there thinking that is the place. And it is not. I think some of the things that are going to happen over there very shortly are going to show that, and the world government is going to probably set up their government there. Netanyahu's already said, he gave a map at the UN. I mentioned it. 
gave a map and it didn't show any Gaza, it didn't show any Palestinian, it showed just Israel. And it was a bigger Israel than is there today on the geographic map. So their plan is to get rid of everybody that is opposed to the world government being set up there and set it up. And then you see, without America and without so-called Israel there, the Muslims won't have a problem with that. The Christians won't have a problem with that because that's the world government of God now and they send me a check and I can buy and sell because I have the mark of God. That's what it's going to be called. They're in for a big disillusionment. Okay. Oh, I'm in Isaiah. I can't read Deuteronomy 12 here. Let's go back there. Anyway, you are to go to the place which your God shall choose out of your tribes. And he said it would be Jerusalem in several different scriptures. And of course, the new Jerusalem, his capital, will be coming down from heaven. And he will still rule from, and Jerusalem will be the key place. So once he established it back in these scriptures, it's always going to be that in whatever form it is in. Revelation 21 gives you uh, the form that it will be in then. And you bring your tithes, your offerings, your firstlings, and all those things there to give to God, to sacrifice to God. So God is to be the center of our world. And knowing people, God set up quite a few things financially, so that we are to have God as the center of our lives and the center of our finances. Now, he doesn't tell us, when, when you go out and you are increased, you make money from some form, whatever it might be, that you were to keep 90% of it, and then you were to give the last 10% to God. doesn't put it that way, does he? He says, give the first 10% to me, and then the rest is yours. Well, that's before we consider second and third tithe and offerings and all those other things that are mentioned here. But he is to come first, and worshiping him is to come first. First tithe we give directly to the priest or to the ministry today. Paul said there's a difference there in Hebrews, that it went from the priesthood to the ministry. So he changed the name, but it's still the same setup. The first 10% goes to those who represent God, teach his way, and live off the gospel, as Paul said they should do. So God is number one. You give the first part to him. Now when we get the second tithe, which we will hear before we're done, not today, but before we're done with this, it also is centered around God, isn't it? Because you use that second tithe not to give directly to God, but to give to take yourself and your family to the Feast of Tabernacles and the other feasts to worship God. 
So the first 20% of your income goes either to God or for the purpose of taking to the feast to worship God. Now that puts God solidly first in your finances. And then he talks about, on top of that, free will offerings on the feast and so on and so forth, all the different offerings that we are to give. So that puts God number one. Then you come to third tithe, and what are the two great commandments? Worship God, and then, and above all things, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So the third tithe is also then given every third and sixth year out of seven. For the widow, the orphan, the Levite, the uh, stranger in your gates, held to it can be used by specifically, and that is to be given to show your love to your neighbor. So the first two commandments are embodied in the financial instruction God gives from the very beginning of Christianity. God first, worshiping God with the second tithe second, and then loving our neighbor as ourselves on the third and sixth year out of seven. And even the seventh year of that cycle, we forgive debts. Well, that's loving your neighbor as yourself. He forgives any debts you may owe him, and you forgive any debts back and forth. So, the way of God is wrapped up in our finances. Everything about our lives is to put God first. Now, that's not the American way. The American way is to keep all you can get and make more of it and throw a little change or a few bucks in the plate as it goes around in whatever church you go to. There are a very few who do teach tithing. The Mormon church is one of those. Uh, they want the money. It's amazing what they do, though, is the Mormon church is in business and owns a lot of big corporations and a lot of shares in a lot of big corporations. So they have their members turning in the tithe, and then those members who are running businesses and working to produce that tithe, the Mormon church goes into competition with, because they themselves are a business operation. So, your, your competition gets 10% of your money and then compete against you with that money. That's not quite fair. <laughs> not quite what the Bible says. So money still can be the center of attention in religions. And then we give God a pittance. No, God wants us to worship Him above all and Finances are one of the first things that he hits. And when he gets here into these statutes and judgments, worship me first, get rid of all the false gods, and then bring to Jerusalem the center of your financial world. You know, that was the center of my financial world just as a kid. My parents taught me from that age I was supposed to keep first, second, and third tithes. Didn't have much income, but I had three Band-Aid boxes. 
They would hold it. <laughs> I would send in, I would save my first tithe in one box, my second tithe in the second box, and then my third tithe in the third band-aid box. And then those were turned in at the feast, the first tithe. Second tithe I could use to buy me a hamburger at the feast. Not at Passover, but at the feast. Uh, and then the third tithe went to Pasadena every third and sixth year. So I was learning as, as a child, as soon as I got a paycheck, whatever it might be, working for some farmer or whatever, first thing I did was go fill my Band-Aid boxes. I became habit as a eight, nine, ten-year-old kid to do it that way because my parents were trying to teach me Deuteronomy 12 and other places where these things are mentioned. So God knew way, way, way ahead of time that materiality and the worship of money and wealth would be one of the biggest obstacles to serving Him. So He arranged the monetary system to put Him first and us second. Logical, good thinking, a reason to put God first in our lives. And then that spreads to every other aspect of our lives. To put God first in what we say, what we think, what we do, in every aspect of life. But he nails us on the finances first because he knew that would be a problem. And it always has been. As long as you're humans, it always will be. So where he puts his name is the center of your financial world as well. Uh, verse 8, You shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. So he makes the point very clearly before giving many statutes and judgments that we're to do the things that are right in God's eyes, not our own eyes. And Israel had already had problems wanting to do what they wanted to do, not what God wanted them to do. <coughs> and it would get worse. For you are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the eternal your God gives you. They were still wandering in the desert when uh, Moses gave these instructions to them. But he was giving them instruction ahead of time as they wandered for 40 years, about what they were to do when they got there. And they started out pretty good. Well, except the one guy that just had to have something out of Jericho. But it got worse. They started out trying to obey God, but it didn't last very long, and they were back into paganism, uh, just like they wanted to be. And we did the same thing when we came to this country, the pilgrims. A few were trying to obey God and did a few right things and then got overwhelmed by the Babylonian Greek system, Satan system, and became the great Babylon that we are today, end-time Babylon. So here he's warning us, when you come into your inheritance, do the things which God says. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the eternal your God gives you to inherit, 
when he gives you rest from all your enemies uh, round about, so that you dwell in safety, God's going to do his part. He'll put down all these ites, Hittites, uh, Jebusites, on and on it went with the ites. He'd get rid of them, and you'll dwell in safely in the, in the land. Then there shall be a place which the eternal your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. There shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which you vow to the eternal. They couldn't go to Jerusalem because it was in the promised land. Uh, the Arabs were keeping that Jerusalem in the Mideast, and the one in the promised land, and this is it, was here. And we didn't come into it until at least Roanoke. And then we had 430 years, and we screwed that up royally. And at the end of 430 years, in 2017, God passed judgment in Amos 8, and with that eclipse, it went over. And now, uh, World War III is breaking out right around the second eclipse. What do you think it's going to be by the third one in April? It's going to get worse and worse from now until then. I'll guarantee you that. We're into the inheritance now, and we're about to go into the original small inheritance. See, God promised us, I think even in this chapter, uh, that he would give us, give Israel a small inheritance, and that was from, basically from Provo to the uh, Grand Canyon, and over in, barely into Nevada and over past Bryce Canyon, was the extent of the original promised land, and then he said he would expand it and make it bigger, and he made it continent-wide, is what he gave us altogether. So, we've been dwelling in that expanded promised land, haven't we? All over it. And the church has been scattered all over it. And then he says he's going to bring 10% back to the original sized promised land. And we're in, geographically, that area sitting here today. We've not taken over Zion and Jerusalem yet, but we're on the outside of the Canaan Mountains uh, in that sense is a type, and we'll go on in shortly when God opens that up to build Jerusalem. Won't be long. But when you do, that's where you go is to Jerusalem. Many scriptures show that. Now, verse 12, you shall rejoice before the eternal your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he has no part nor inheritance with you, <coughs> your second tithe you are to share, not just for your family, but with others. You're supposed to be generous, uh, help others out, maybe take people to dinner, maybe feed them at your place. Uh, so on and so forth. I know there in Big Sandy in the early years, uh, most of us were living in tents and trailers and buses and various things. 
camping out. There weren't motels much around, and people didn't have in those years enough money to stay in one for the most part, even with second tides. But you could just wander through and stop at a tent or at a bus and say, Hi, we're so-and-so from wherever we were. And they'd say, Come on in. Here's some cheese and some wine and some apples and on and on. Uh, they would Whatever they'd bought for the feast, they would share. Always willing. I mean, you could walk around that camp and get real fat in eight days if you really wanted to and not pay for a bit of it because people were sharing and giving and hospitable with each other and that type of thing was going on. I don't necessarily think feast gifts per se are the answer because it begins to sound too much like Christmas where if somebody gives you a gift, and this, this started getting that way a little bit in the church for a while. Uh, they gave you a feast gift, labeled it that, uh, verbally, mentally, whatever. And then you began to feel an obligation. Well, if they gave me a feast gift, I ought to give them a feast gift. So this gift-giving back and forth began to get started in a Christmassy sort of way. So, a feast gift particularly, or specifically, was kind of frowned on and said, let's don't go that way with that. That doesn't mean that you couldn't be hospitable, though, and share what you had, as he's saying right here, with others around you at the feast. So, you didn't wrap it up and say, happy feast. You just gave it. You know, uh, we should think about that because that's part of our obligation at the feast is to love our neighbors as ourselves. So if we can share a steak with them or share a glass of wine with them or whatever, like it was there at Big Sandy, uh, then I think that is the proper healthy way to do it rather than feeling obligated to do the gift thing. <clears throat> Now you can you can give to each other though. I mean, that's what hospitality really is. Just don't do it in a formal feast gift way. You want to buy something for the kids? Buy something for the kids, and say, uh, "Here we are, God feast the tabernacle. Here's something special for you." And you don't even have to say that necessarily. I mean, you can, but they learn pretty quickly then. That a feast is a time when we can be happy, we can be joyful, and we might even receive some nice things that we don't get every day because people are being just so very generous at the feast and doing things for each other. So doing things for each other is wonderful. Getting it down to where we feel an obligation then is not necessarily a cheerful giver, which God loves a cheerful giver. He wants it to come from our heart, not from an obligation. And Christmas has become an obligation. I remember my granddad, who was a Methodist, and he kept Christmas just like everybody else. But I remember hearing him mutter, Oh, I hate Christmas. I don't think he thought anybody could hear it, but I did. Uh, because of the obligations. 
that were involved. And all the big deal that was made that wasn't necessary. Uh, be joyful, be lively, be helpful, be hospitable at the feast, and take care of everyone. Well, some senior citizens are just living on Social Security, and depending on what they did through their lives, maybe they lived most of their life in the church, they tithed on their whole paycheck, on the whole amount. So, when they start getting a Social Security check back, uh, they don't pay tithes on it because they paid it when they paid the full amount of the check before all the stuff was taken out of it. They paid on their full salary. Then you have others that didn't do that. They just paid on what they got and they still owe on that tithe that they receive because the Social Security that they're getting, they didn't tithe on, so then they need to tithe on it since they didn't before. If they did tithe on it when it was being taken out by the government, they tithed on it then, then they don't owe tithe on it when they receive the benefits back later. But if they didn't pay tithe on that that the government took out, then they owe tithe on it as it comes to them. They're increased comes later on. And a lot of senior citizens don't have second tithe or they don't have very much. And they barely get by. Well, we should be sure that they uh, share the abundance of those who are still working and have a lot of second tithe. See, they can share easily and still have everything they might want you can only eat and drink so much, and then you can let others eat and drink and be hospitable with them. And we have to think about those things, you know. So-and-so probably doesn't have much. I'll be sure they get taken care of. And then they do that. God wants us to be generous and hospitable. We go to the feast, the place where he commanded, and he's talking about second tide here. Uh, verse 13, take heed to yourself that you offer not your burnt offerings in every place that you see. You can't just do it anywhere. It needs to be where God has set his name. God didn't set his name in this country, did he, yet? People still think it's in the Middle East. <laughs> it's not. But in the place which the Eternal shall choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. So it has to be in one of their tribes, and that isn't a tribe of Israel in the Middle East. It's mostly Edomites from Esau, Jacob's brother. It's not Jacob. And when the Rothschilds, and these people behind the scenes who are Edomites established that city and that country. They did it as an Edomite country and called it Israel. The book of Revelation talks about those who say they are Jews and they are not. The Khazarians converted to Judaism as a religion. It was not in their blood. Just 
the religion of Judaism. And the Edomites, many of them now, pose as Jews, and they're not Jews at all, by blood, just by religion. So you have a lot of secular people in the Middle East, Jerusalem, or Israel today, who are not Christians really at all. They claim to be Christian, but they're not. And then you have people who claim they're Jews that are not, the Edomites. Now, there probably are a few true blood Israelites in the Middle East. That would be the more conservative ones, uh, the modern-day Pharisees. They're still not followers of God. They're followers of Phariseeism today, even though they may be blood Jews. So there is not a presence of God today in the Middle East. In all of the decades of worldwide, we never established a church there, a congregation there. Mr. Armstrong did establish an office there. And the office manager had nothing to do but prop his feet on his desk because there was nothing else going on over there. He even tried to establish something over there, and it didn't work. It didn't work at all. So they made a playground for kids. Well, I don't find that in here anywhere that that needed to be done, but nevertheless, they went. They also did some archaeological stuff and scratched around trying to find uh, Bible stuff there, and it wasn't there. Helen, Constantine's mother, went over there on a two-way trip and named all those places after Bible names. How she found them all in two weeks is beyond me, but she threw names on all those places and called them Bible names. And the Catholic Church and the Crusaders took it away from the Arabs and called it God's country. And it never was prior to that. So, anyway, we got to be in the right place. The place he chooses out of your tribes. Well, this is the tribe of Ephraim. And in the original small promised land, where the original Jerusalem was, was Judea, where the Levites and the Jews were to be. So it's the hills of Judea we're to flee to, just outside Jerusalem. It's within a walk. You don't have to have helicopters, you can walk it, if you have deer legs, which we're wanting. Well, that's all the time, really, that I should take. I'm going to stop right there uh, for today, down to verse 14.